Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 346. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 346 you're listening to. My guest today is sound designer, mixer, composer, and writer Dante Fumo. Dante started out recording indie bands in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and has since branched out into doing sound design for film and games and relocating himself to Minnesota. He's a longtime fan of the show and someone I've stayed in touch with over the years, and I'm very excited to have him on. So, Dante Fumo, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let me give you a Dolby Atmos update. Mmm. Okay. What's going on? Am I there yet? No, not yet. Getting there. So, um, yeah, talk about a long process. And it's really just all on me. It's me dictating how fast or slow the implementation of this Dolby Atmos thing goes. So if you've tuned into past episodes, you know that uh, I've gotten the electrical redone. I've gotten some aesthetic things redone with some reclaimed wood walls that sonically, honestly, have changed the room for the better, I have to admit. One of the things that I had to do was I had to sell my furniture. I've got some uh, some beautiful furniture here, but as much as I love it, it needs to go because it just doesn't fit into the big scheme of how I'm doing things. And you might say, well, you're adding speakers. Why are you get, getting rid of the furniture? Well, it's like this. I've got this beautiful desk in front of me. There's two bays with six spaces each, and I keep all my stuff in there for the most part. And to my right, I've got a 12 space rack with a bunch of uh, stuff like a CD player, a cassette player, a DAP machine, a turntable. It's kind of like, you know, that's my older technology rack, if you will. And then I've got a uh, another rack very similar to that, but much smaller that holds a power amp for, um, for my Reftone speakers here. So the plan is to basically dispense with all this furniture that I have. And I've ordered two new racks that are around, I think they're 12 spaces each. Yeah, they're 12 spaces each. So two of those that have a uh, wider area on the top level so I can put some stuff on there, you know, laptop, hard drives, turntable, some things that I have scattered out in other locations. So try to imagine it. You're, you're sitting in the room and to your right will be these two racks. And out of those racks will come a... Um, a loom, a, um, I don't know what you call it. I, the loom is the only thing I can think of. And in that loom, it will carry all the things that I need to connect up to my new desk replacement, which is going to be a sound anchor. Yes, the people that make the speaker stands, the uh, speaker stands that have been around forever, it seems. Uh, they are making me a, uh, what's called a DAW1X, I believe, with a second platform. So if you look that up, and I'll include a link in the show notes to sound anchor to check this out. It's, uh, it's basically, it's like a DAW cart. It's made of this nice metal and it's obviously it's on rollers and it's got a platform for your keyboard and your mouse and maybe one other thing. And then I've got a second platform above that that will hold my Reftone speakers, you know, for my, for my smaller speaker reference. And then there's an articulating arm on there 
with a vase mount that holds a monitor. And so that's gonna be my new desk. Yeah, very small, very minimal. And then there will be a loom that goes over to the racks on the right. My Grace Design controller will be close to me, but its brain will be over to the far right of me. And this will allow me to find an optimum spot in the room to sit, but it will also allow for much more space around me, which I'm really looking forward to. It's a little different way to go, not maybe the traditional way you see things done. But for me, I think this is going to work, and I think that this is, um, this is the happening way to go. I want to draw attention to something that I got because I got it sitting here next to me. So I had to find something to wrap the cables that are coming to the sound anchor cart in. And I've owned different materials and, and solutions before that wrap cables. Well, I found this company online. What are they called? Uh, cable Organizer. Cableorganizer.com. And I found this stuff. And it's called Noise Reduction Self-Wrapping Split Braided Sleeving. Say that 10 times fast. And what it is, it's this material that has a split in it, but when you, and you can get cables in and out of it very easily, but when you let it go, it rolls up into itself. So it makes a tight wrap around the cable and it's, it's very cool. So that's going to, that's going to go from the sound anchor cart over to the racks on the right to connect with everything. So it'll be nice and tidy and nice and clean. And I'm looking forward to having it done like that. So once that stuff is done, then we start to bring in the speakers. And I'll talk about that at a later date in the show. But once the speakers are in and we fire everything up, then Dolby will come over and they will uh, shoot the room and do some speaker correction to the Dolby Atmos curve. And so when it's all said and done, I'll have this Atmos mixing environment to work in. But I'll also have at the flick of a switch on my Grace Design controller, which is going to be an M908. So I'm going to have to sell my M905 sitting in front of me. That's a stereo controller, and I'm, I'm selling that to get a surround controller or an Atmos controller, I guess you would say. And so when it's all said and done, I can flip between stereo or Atmos at the flick of a switch, and I'll have a nice open room. And it's really going to be great. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Now, it's it's also caused me to sell off some stuff that, you know, I know it's hard to let go of gear and hard to let go of certain pieces. This furniture that I have is absolutely stunning, but it, like I said, I can't, I can't justify holding on to it. And so uh, a buddy of mine, fortunately, is going to buy it and he's going to upgrade his his studio situation. So it's going to go into good hands and I'm, I'm really happy about that. So that's the update. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Sound Anchor uh, cart that I'm going to get. You can check that out. I'll also put this cable wrap stuff because I really think this is a great solution. If you're trying to wrap cables and make it look nice, but you don't want to lock yourself into something that's going to prevent you from getting to the cables or changing, adding a cable or changing the cables out or subtracting cables, whatever. This makes it easy to do that. So I can pull the cable out, I can put a new one in, and it doesn't cause me a lot of uh, heartache, right, to do it. Because <laughs> sometimes this stuff, you do it, and then you're like, oh no, I gotta add a cable. That means I have to change everything to do that. I'm not gonna have to do that, it's gonna be great. So that's about it. One thing that I, I was wanting to mention to you is that Sound Anchor is so backed up with orders that it's an eight week wait, yeah. 
it was three weeks on the racks uh, from from this company I ordered I ordered the racks from. In this case, I went with the uh, the company Output, who makes the sidecar. So I'm going with two of these sidecar things they make. That's a three week wait, and I thought, oh, okay, well that's not too bad. But then Sound Anchor has an eight week wait, and you know it is what it is. You just gotta wait. So I'm hoping by mid October at the very latest of this year of 2021, that this all will be implemented and ready to go. The room will be measured and I will be on the way to mixing Atmos. And uh, it's very exciting. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Dante Fumo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dante, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Where are you talking to me from? Rochester, Minnesota, which is about 
little over an hour um, southeast of the Twin Cities. And where did you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Shorewood. Not really a suburb, more of just like the next town over. With, do you have any brothers or sisters? I have an older sister, yeah. About okay. Two and a half years older than me. Is she involved in, in audio at all? Not audio, but writing. Our dad was a freelance writer for most of his life, and we both eventually fell into that. Interesting. When did audio come on your radar as something that was important to you? It's actually hard to pinpoint, but I think it was sometime in high school toward the end when I was thinking about college, not really sure what I wanted to do. I was really into prog rock. I was just listening to the way that they constructed these grand arrangements and you know, it's all studio magic. And I don't know, I guess I just started thinking about that a lot, had to look at schools eventually, decided to look at an audio school. Uh, with the help of my sister, I found uh, McNally Smith in St. Paul, Minnesota. I've never heard of McNally Smith. Uh, I think <laughs> I think they actually closed now. This was back in 2009. You know, it was a private music school here. I did a two-year degree there in um, engineering, but they also taught, you know, all the instruments and voice and production. That kind of thing. What was your experience like there? I enjoyed it. I probably wouldn't have done it for more than two years. You know, I, I feel like I got the skills I needed and moved back to Milwaukee. But I think that the people on the engineering and production side got the better deal because that's where they sank most of their money into. You know, we had like Studer 24-track machines. We had Otaris. We had the first, I think it was the third and fourth serial number SSL duality consoles in there. There was like a huge studio complex. So that was really neat, but I don't feel like you need to go to audio school at all to do this. Mm -hmm. I didn't really leverage the connections as much as I could have. I wasn't applying to internships or anything like that. I got the skills and I moved back to Milwaukee and just did DIY, basically. Did you think that doing audio was going to be a professional adventure? Yeah, I wanted to... Um, be a producer, basically. I, I didn't know that until I started college, I think. You know, like I said, like I could have applied to a lot of studios and such. I, for some reason, didn't feel like going that route. But I, yeah, I definitely knew I wanted to do it, but more in a freelance capacity, like, you know, opening a studio, which I eventually did, that kind of thing. So tell me about your first professional experience. Depends on what you want to call professional. It started... <laughs> um, <laughs> Recording people for like six packs and maybe 20 bucks um, in a basement somewhere in Milwaukee, that kind of thing for a while, mostly friends and friends of friends, you know, a few solid years of that until I was like consistently making money at it uh, and decided to build a studio and such. But it started very DIY for sure. Those are some frustrating years. I'm sure not. I'm sure I know because not only are you getting your feet wet, but you're also not necessarily dealing with top pros. That's true. Yeah. But a great growing experience nonetheless. Mm -hmm. When did it go beyond six packs? <laughs> a few years out of college. I don't know the exact year. Um, I moved into a house with a little more space in the basement. I set up shop there, started recording more and more. You know, I always had a job. It wasn't until 2018 or 19 that I went completely freelance. Having the job and trying to turn the recording thing into a job. That's a little bit of a juggle. Yeah, I always took the approach of working <laughs> as, as little as I could at whatever job I was at at the time. You know, if I could get a four day a week deal or three days, sometimes I would totally take that and I would just 
record as much as possible on the side. I also started doing some freelance writing for Reverb along the way somewhere there. Mm. And that ramped up and, you know, eventually what was allowed me to quit shitty jobs, basically, and start doing more stuff that I'm passionate about. Not only are you an engineer, but you're also a copywriter. Mm -hmm. How did the copyright thing come into your world? Well, first of all, copywriting is not what some people think it is. It's not about patents or anything like that. It's writing copy for uh, either marketing or, um, you know, articles and blogs and stuff. But it got started. I knew somebody who worked at Reverb, like, I think since they started pretty early on. And somehow through him, I emailed somebody in their marketing department or something. I saw that they were putting out this great content and just asked if I could write for them. Sent in like a writing sample maybe. And yeah, slowly started doing it and did that for years actually until I got this copywriting job. And that's how they found me actually was through a couple of uh, articles I had written for Reverb. The current job that you just... Mm-hmm. kind of uh, dispensed with or when no, part- no, no. no you went part time part time part time that's right I know this is not a copywriting show but I have to ask how did you develop your copywriting skills I mean I guess part of it is growing up with a dad who was a freelance writer you know he worked from home most mm. of his life so that was a model for me I guess I was good in English class in high school I wasn't real good at taking tests or anything but I could write a paper if I was given the time on my own to do it. So that, and then when I worked uh, in the writing center at the music school I went to, I was a tutor there. So I guess grew my skills that way and eventually just took a shot at writing content for Reverb. I'm making the assumption that your copywriting skills could be useful in helping to everything from a social media post about your studio to creating a website to help, you know, verbally sell what it is you're doing. Am I am I off base on that? Is it has it been No, helpful? that's that's exactly right. Yeah. It depends on how much time you can devote to it. Like I've thought about, you know, wow, I could make my own blogs, get some more traffic to my website. I should really post on social media more, but it comes down to time and motivation and since I do it for a living, I don't devote much of it to that. But yes, as far as website copy, it definitely helped me think about how to market myself, how to describe what I do basically in a way that attracts people. Yeah. If you have any kind of website or social media presence at all, um, it's a good skill to have for sure. It is. It's tough to sell oneself. Uh, depends on the, you know, the, the client you're going for, because your copywriting skills could lend themselves to a culture or a way of selling that is vastly different from your own personal aesthetic in your studio. Yeah. You can, write in a very kind of dry corporate way and that'll attract a certain type of client. You can be a lot more casual, attract a different type of client. You can even be kind of crass and vulgar and attract a completely different kind of client. And each of those are valid. You just need to know how to communicate with different kinds of people. And it even comes down to just like email threads or text messages or any way that you communicate really. Talk to me about your studio. Well, it's located back in Milwaukee, so I'm not there anymore. I called it the workshop when I was running it. Uh, It was built in a big open warehouse space, so I framed out the whole thing. I think it was like 1,600 square feet. It was fairly large, way too large, um, but really cheap rent, so I really couldn't pass it up. I had a carpenter friend of mine help me frame the place, you know, did double walls, air gap in between, 
did a floating floor for the live room, two layers of drywall, all that kind of thing, except the live room ceiling. I never finished because that is hard to do. Um, (laughs) But I made records successfully there for a few years before I moved. Um, It was a really great space. It's now Stillwave recording, I believe. Stillwave Studios. It's still in operation, but really cool warehouse space. Really enjoyed my time there. What What's your takeaway from your time there and what you learned about not only recording, but business of recording? Don't build a studio. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I was listening to Working Class Audio a lot at the time. Everybody was saying, you know, either don't do this or really have a plan if you do. I had a plan, but could have been better. So, you know, I kind of just, I broke even, got to make a lot of great records. That was the best thing that came out of it. But it's not something I'd do again unless I really had a solid plan. And um, yeah, I I got a really good deal on the rent and everything and had a great carpenter friend who worked for a really fair rate. So like, it, you know, I didn't, it's not like I sank tens of thousands of dollars of, into it, but I think ultimately I also realized that I was more suited to post-production work and not so much running sessions, even though I love doing that. As a business thing, I kind of prefer working on my own at home. I do post-production for movies now. I do a little bit of game sound. Sometimes I compose a little bit. So I eventually got more into that as well, rather than recording bands. Tell me about the exit process of getting out of that studio with the landlord and you know what you left behind. The landlord was cool. You know, I gave him notice that I was going to move out. Uh, I think we, toward the end, we had like just a month to month deal. So it was easy. I found a local band through a friend of mine who was looking for a rehearsal space and two of them are engineers. So I was able to say like, Hey, do you want to take over this lease from me? I actually sold them a console with it. I, you know, I sold them some of the furniture that was in the studio. So it was kind of an easy handoff, and I'm really glad that it's in good hands now and that it's still being used as a studio. Um, that makes me happy. But yeah, it actually went pretty smoothly. You know, recoup some money by selling that stuff. I obviously don't need a giant 24-channel analog board. So I also had a tape machine at the time, which I sold to some kid on Craigslist. I hope he's using that <laughs> to good effect. You moved on, and so your current working model is you're based out of your home. And, yep. and I think that's the way to do it now, unless you are really serious about opening a space and can support it. Yeah. And then obviously working from home, I think you and I are in a similar position. It, it lends itself to certain activities, mixing, mastering, post-production, audio books or, you know, podcasts or whatever. Basically anything that doesn't require tracking a band. Yep. Did you make a conscious decision to pare down the gear to a small footprint or what was your thought process? Uh, Yeah, I sold a bunch of stuff in the year or so before I moved. I just started selling off stuff. I was like, you know what? I don't really use this piece of gear that much. I fell out of love with analog recording, sold that stuff, (laughs) pared down a little bit. Since I've been here, I've started getting more stuff, but stuff that I actually use like surround speakers back here got a nice desk, things like that, that aren't really flashy, but really help your work. Yeah. Stuff that just gets to the point. Yeah. I used to maintain a a small mobile recording rig too, Mm -hmm. um, that I could record at least eight tracks into. 
uh, with a little road case. And I sold that too, because I realized, you know what, I don't really know anyone in this town yet. And this isn't really going to be making money for me for a while. So I'm going to instead focus on my setup here. Yeah. And I'm kind of continually in the process of analyzing what I'm using, what I'm not, and trying to pare that down. How does this situation compare to the studio situation for, for you on, on any level, whether it's gear or money? What are the differences for you? It definitely uh, is a lot leaner. You know, my overhead is just my rent at my house and whatever subscriptions to QuickBooks I have and things like that. So in that sense, it's a lot better. I do miss having a big open space to make noise in. That was pretty awesome. But, you know, if I needed to track a band, I know several studios in town that would be happy to, you know, have me come in. So, you know, I think it makes a lot more sense to do that rather than have your own place for most people. I, I just love it here. I love working on my own. Like I said, I do film work now, so it's a lot of editing, mixing, that kind of thing. Now that I have a basement with more space that's finished, it's, it's a really nice space to work. It's a finished basement. Half of it is finished. Half of it's like the furnace room and stuff, but it's, it's really nice and it works perfectly for what I do here. Did you ever feel that at the old studio, there was any kind of identity of yours that was tied up into it? And did you ever go through any kind of anguish in your mind? It was weird. Yeah. I think I was trying to, I didn't like the hustle basically of trying to like record every band in town and, you know, got to meet these people, got to go to this show and stuff like that. I don't feel like I left that behind exactly. I feel like this works a lot better for me. But yeah, it was weird, like sinking um, money into a place, leaving that. I heard this advice once. I think it was actually on a writing podcast. It was basically like, it's never too late to stop making a mistake or something like that. It was somebody talking about, they've put so much time into writing a novel they're not happy with it. It's okay to quit writing that novel, basically. Just because you've sank a bunch of time into something doesn't mean you need to continue. I think it's also known as the sunk cost fallacy. Just the principle where like, just because you've put resources into something doesn't mean you'll get a return out of it. And that shouldn't influence your decision making, basically. So I think that it's a common thing when we well, I put all this money in. I got to finish it. I got to do what I set out to do, even though I'm not happy doing it. Yeah. So eventually I, I decided it was better to leave and put that in the hands of people who are going to like do a better job with it and just do my own thing. And that also led to me branching out into other areas of audio because for 10 years, I was pretty much just focused on recording bands, mixing bands, a little bit of mastering. Mm-hmm. And then I started diversifying into some game audio, some film and stuff like that. And that's what I've really fallen in love with lately. Interesting. How do you find the work for the things that you've diversified into? That is really the hardest part. The way I've, that I've found film work actually was, I knew a friend at a job I worked at who was an animator. We did a short film together and he applied through the Milwaukee Film Organization. It's a nonprofit um, they put on this film fest in Milwaukee every year, but they also do a grant program to give funding to filmmakers. So he applied for that, didn't get the funding, but I realized I can volunteer for that, volunteer my services, basically. So I contacted them. I signed up with their program. You know, you donate a certain amount of your time, basically uh, a dollar amount of however many hours you're going to do. They also, you know, they give cash grants. They give like 
camera rental services, uh, studios will donate production time, that kind of thing. So I strongly advise people, if you're having a hard time finding work, volunteering is a great way to do it. And it doesn't all have to be for free. Like, obviously, I'm giving some of my time away, but it's ridiculous to do an entire film for free. So obviously, I'm going to get paid, you know, down the line at some point. And I offer a discount to once the money's used up. So it is really hard to find work. It's, you know, it's like recording. Like you just, you have to make personal connections and there's really no way around that. But definitely consider volunteering. I also volunteered for an organization called Girls Rock. Have you heard of them? I have, yeah. Yeah, um, they had a camp in Milwaukee. I think they have it in a lot of cities actually. And um, I volunteered to record the bands for two days. That was a pretty fun experience. Not that I made any real connections through that, but it was a great time. And if you're just looking to get your first experience anywhere, try volunteering. You mentioned something. It's uh, there's there's a connection element to that that I think pays off in the long term. If you're trying mm-hmm. to network and grow your circle of people that you work with and that know you for your talents, and it's it's really interesting, especially when you get into the world where. Uh, I'll take give you an example. Uh, just locally here where I'm at, uh, doing volunteer work that eventually led to paid work for the school system for sound reasons, you know, because people, they they get to hang with you, they get a sense of you, and then they're like, oh, okay, I like this person. Oh, hey, we got an opportunity, and you're the person for it. That, yeah. seem, that seems to be, I think, a powerful thing uh, that many people overlook because I think, and tell me if you if you agree or disagree here, but I think that people dismiss local, non-industry-related audio things a little bit too much when there's great opportunities there to yeah, sitting right in front of you, make connections, get experience, make some income, diversify a bit, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but it can also happen completely online too. Like the way I got into game audio is. Um, I have a cousin that works in the industry, but that's not how I got the connection. He introduced me to the sound person at the game studio he works at, who just like kind of gave me a primer on what game audio is and such. And it's not like I got a job from that or anything. But what I did get was there's a Slack community, a game audio Slack community that I joined. And through that, I pretty much just made connections. I did an article for Reverb where I interviewed several people from that, got to know them better. Uh, one of them eventually had a gig that they didn't have time for and recommended me, which I was not expecting at all, but that's how I got my, actually not my first game audio gig. I think I got some random thing before that. So yeah, it doesn't have to be local. There's different ways to do it, but if you find a community online, that can be just as strong, but it it does all come down to personal connections, I think. You know, I knew this person. It's not like I applied to do anything. I just knew someone who recommended me for something. And then once I got my foot in that door, I did a good job and then, you know, made money from it eventually. Is that Slack channel the one that you turned me onto? That was field recording, but I might have also invited you to game audio. I'm not sure. Yeah, the field recording Slack channel you turned me onto. Oh, it's an amazing resource. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, Nathan Smith, WCA number 298, he came out of conversations on that field recording Slack channel you brought me into. Mm-hmm. And uh, is that how you knew George Vlad too? No, I knew George before that. Oh, cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. And it goes so far beyond field recording, too. It shouldn't even be called that. Um, People discuss post-production, sound design, (laughs) metadata. There's a lot of metadata conversations. Oh, yeah. Amazing resource. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Uh, You mentioned surround speakers. What's going on there? I... Replaced my stereo setup with 5.1 with the goal of expanding it to Atmos eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I started working with spatial audio, um, not with Atmos, but with Ambisonics mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago. And you actually don't even need this stuff for it. You can do it entirely with some headphones or in-ears. Um, so I started that way. I made an album that I mixed fully in Ambisonics, released it in binaural and stereo formats, and... I think I'm actually going to remaster it for Atmos eventually. That's kind of a project I'm taking on now. But yeah, now that I have the space, basically, I decided to expand my setup to be able to do immersive audio stuff, especially because in the world of film and TV, it's really gaining traction. Uh, A little bit in music, but mostly in film and TV, I think. Yeah, and I think we've briefly discussed my... uh the beginnings of my journey into Atmos, which I'm still at the beginning of that journey trying to, you know, get things going and I'm making some changes to accommodate that here in the next couple months. But I'm curious why you feel that immersive audio is important. First of all, just because I like it. Um, (laughs) Whether or not it goes anywhere, I think it's fun to do. And I love to be enveloped by a whole sphere of sound. I think that's really cool. But I also have seen with Netflix adopting Atmos as like basically a standard deliverable. It's most of the big movies being released now being in that format. I think it's just the way forward in this industry. And I want to be part of that. Yeah, I've I've encountered along the way in my research and 
there's definitely a, a lot of people that are naysayers that don't really feel like this is worth it, that it, it's another version of, you know, they like to point to quad from the seventies <laughs> yeah. and, uh, is kind of the, that point of why that doesn't work. Uh, I'm curious what you would say to that, to the, to those that I don't believe. I haven't been in the industry long enough to really say anything of substance, but there's been a lot of like surround formats that have come and gone over the years. But I mean, in cinema, they've been doing five, one and seven, one, and even nine, one for a long time in music. I'm still not entirely sure that it'll catch on. I hope it will, but it seems like the possibilities of that are, are fewer than with film. But um, I don't know. I guess it's just from conversations I've had with people in the industry and articles I've read and interviews I've listened to that it just, it seems like it's going to happen. And I can't point to exactly why, because things like this have been around for, Ambisonics was invented in the 70s. Like this goes way back, Mm -hmm. probably even before that. Quad was, I don't even know what year. So people have been doing this a long time. It might just be the technologies caught up to make it feasible for a fully spatial mix to be decoded on your phone or on your smart TV or anything like that. I think maybe it's the backend technology that's driving it. Mm-hmm. But, but honestly, I'm not, I'm not well-versed enough to really say. Yeah, for me, I've never, ever been remotely interested in surround or immersive formats until now, until Dolby Atmos came around. I mean, yeah, ambisonics and, and binaural recording, I, I've always kind of found fascinating and toyed around a little bit with binaural, but a, like a Dolby based surround format has not caught my attention until now. And I think it's the fact that it has Dolby's name behind it partially. It's kind of like, you know, Pro Tools is only the industry standard because it has so much industry power behind it. And like Avid's a huge company, like, but a lot of people use Reaper, you know? Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of the same thing. I don't know. I don't think Ambisonics will catch on nearly like Atmos is, but I still really enjoy working in Ambisonics and I encourage everyone to check it out. There's a lot of great tools out there you can get for free. Atmos is a slightly different system. It's object-based rather than channel-based. And it's, you know, it's a proprietary format, whereas Ambisonics is, you know, open. So it's the industry that's driving it really, I guess. I think for me, if I get into it and and it turns out I'm wrong, worst case, I just have some extra speakers to sell. And you've gained some new skills. And I've gained some new skills and a new perspective. Yeah. Because I think that's really key in, all, in, in a lot of stuff like this is, you know, just not being afraid to try things in the world of audio. Yeah. The speaker thing is kind of a bummer. Like you don't, you only need the speakers because it's part of the requirements for mixing Dolby Atmos home theater format like Netflix has that in their delivery standards it has to be mixed on a 714 system or 712 maybe um but you can do all this with headphones really yeah i don't have enough experience in it yet to to know i have experimented in headphones with pro tools and the dolby renderer and played around you know with mixes i've got and it just it's very exciting so i don't want to beat the conversation on the ground but I, I'm with you. I think that if you're out there listening, just give it a shot. Just try it, even on headphones, and start to experiment a bit. Because yeah. you really, I think it's like a 90-day trial for the renderer. Mm-hmm. Well, I have um, 
Nuendo, which comes with its own renderer. Um, I don't think there's, I don't think they have it for Reaper yet. I think Pro Tools might have their own. So there's different ways you can get into it. Um, obviously, Nuendo is expensive too, so it's not cheap. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, and one final thought there too is I think it's got a lot of possibilities. Just immersive audio in general has a lot of possibilities for um, audio-based stories. I've got some mm -hmm. friends, uh, as a matter of fact, a previous former WCA guest, Tanner Campbell, is getting into the world of storytelling, delivered as a podcast, but essentially it's storytelling. Yeah, it's like, old like radio audio dramas. drama kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of that happening too. Well, so talk to me a bit about your your gear buying philosophies and why you make the choices you do. It's so tricky because what we do is either a hobby or a profession and often both. So with a hobby, you're buying stuff just because you want it and you want to play around with it. With a profession, you're buying stuff so that you can make more money off of it. And we live in this weird gray area between those two where you can sort of justify buying something as a toy or you can justify buying something because uh, it'll make you a return. But um, yeah, ever since, you know, Leaving the studio, selling off my tape machine and um, board and everything, I've really pared down. And now when I buy something, it's it's a little bit more of a business decision rather than just a fun thing. But yeah, you like it feels so much better to pay rent with money you've made from recording rather than buying another piece of gear with money you've made from recording, at least for me. Like it feels better to know that you're supporting yourself that way rather than digging yourself a hole. However, some gear is easy to sell for close to its original price, analog gear especially. So if I do buy something, it's probably something like that where I can sell it if I need to. It sucks buying interfaces that are going to be worth half as much in a year. I try to minimize that, <laughs> that kind of thing. The other side of that is that I've started spending more on digital stuff, which you in most cases, can't sell. Sometimes you can transfer a license or something. I don't really know how that works. But, you know, I recently bought Nuendo, which was a chunk of change. But I realized, like, that's the way that I can get into working with Atmos because it comes with that built mm. in. It's got a, real, a lot of really specific um, post-production tools. So that was a calculated investment I made. You know, I also bought um, Native Instruments Complete Collector's Edition because... You know, it comes with all these instruments that I'm like, you could buy piecemeal for thousands of dollars, or you could just buy the pack on sale for like, I don't even remember what it is, under a thousand and get a lot of utility out of it. So yeah, it's whether to buy gear or, or software is kind of a toss up, but a lot of what we do is digital now. I mean, I think in the heyday, um, you know, a, a 24 track tape machine, when that was the only choice, I think was, you know, a five to six figure purchase. Mm -hmm. And now with DAWs, you know, we're either talking about a monthly subscription or a yearly subscription or an outright purchase that, I, I mean, what, New Windows, are what, like 2,000 bucks? I thought it was less than 1,000. It might be close to 1,000. Okay. I'm, I'm sure my numbers but are But yeah, ex expensive software for sure. But in comparison to the old days, I mean, you buy that software, you're definitely going to make your money back on that software. Oh yeah. Many yeah. times. If over. you're working... For pay, yeah. And for the longest time, I used Reaper. And, you know, I paid for the license, but it's still like only, it's under $300, I think. Um, yeah. 
So I worked for a long time with very little overhead in that department and eventually made the decision to step up to Nuendo because I could see the value it would bring to me. Okay, so you brought up a valid point is, you know, we're living in that gray zone where, yeah, we may do it for a living, but there's some hobbyist aspects to it of, oh, I want that. I want to go get that mm-hmm. because I want to try it or I want And you just have to know which is which. Like, why are you buying something? It's okay to buy it for a hobby. Just know that you're doing that. What drives the decision of a purchase then for you? How do you make that decision? Like what, how do you qualify it so that you feel better that it's a purposeful business decision that's going to make you money as opposed to a hobbyist decision? Um, In this case, it was because I had a film that I was working on that I knew I would need to like mix professionally in real post-production software. If I was just like, hmm, I'm interested in getting into film. I'll get all this shit right now. I wouldn't do that. (laughs) I waited till I knew I had work um, lined up and that it would pay for itself. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I've made some, I think I've made some purchases of some field recording type gear that was probably hobbyist based in the decision making process as opposed to, you know, Getting whatever, you know, my, my grace monitor controller, that was a purposeful decision that I knew would drive, you know, mm-hmm. everything here. So, okay. I, I get it. Makes sense. Then let's transition into your financial philosophy. Everything that you learned at the studio, I'm sure you've brought, you made some, possibly made some mistakes over there that you're, uh, you've improved on or some concepts. So, Knowing your gear buying philosophy, tell me about your financial philosophy. You know, are you a saver? Are you a spender? What's the plan? Um, Definitely a saver now. You know, everybody says don't go into debt. Everybody knows that, but it's a lesson that sometimes you just have to learn, you know? And, that you know, now that I'm out of debt, I'm like, hell yeah, saving is the way to go. It's not nearly as fun as spending money, but like in a couple decades, I'm really going to appreciate the fact that I saved and invested some money. So yeah, now that I, you know, I have a good enough paying job that I can support myself. Like I don't feel like I need to buy a whole lot unless it's something that's going to pay dividends later on, which is kind of just another form of investing. Like if you buy a piece of gear, that's definitely an investment. Um, It's whether or not it's a smart investment is up to you. And sometimes it's a, a gamble just like any investing is. Yeah, do you uh when when we talk about saving, are you like saving for the short term or are you or are you saving like in some type of uh solo 401k type thing for the long term? Um uh, both. Uh, I have an IRA that I set up a while ago that, you know, you put money into and it grows. Basically, it's <laughs> fairly low risk, I guess depending on what. I don't actually know a ton about stocks and all that, but it's easy to set up. Um you probably need some minimum balance or something. Um, but that, and I also, you know, just set up an automatic transfer in my bank account from mm-hmm. checking to savings. However much you can afford, really. Like, it might be 50 bucks a month, or it might be 500 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will pay for your... What I did was I based it on my estimated taxes. So I put money away every month that I know I'm going to have to pay later. Uh, in taxes because, you know, when you do freelance work, it's not taxed up front like a job. Right. Um, And then if you can afford extra, just start piling that up. 
even if it's a little bit, um, it'll grow, you know, almost anybody can save at least $5 a month. Here's a tip that I think I've mentioned probably 150 or 200 episodes ago. Uh, and I'll bring it up again. When I get paid, I take, I just take that money and I divide it into three and I go right to the IRS's website and I dump a third into there mm-hmm. towards the next year's taxes. And then I go to, um, I go to Vanguard where I've got a, a 401k set up and I dump a third into there. And then I keep a third in the, in the bank account to pay for groceries and, you know, whatever expenses, life expenses. And yeah, it doesn't give you the same dopamine rush as buying a piece of gear, but what does give you the rush is uh, when you get down the line six months or a year and you're like, oh, look, my investments have grown and I don't owe the IRS anything. In fact, maybe yeah, I overpaid and they need to pay me some money. Yeah. That's my pro tip for today. When you make it automatic, it's so much easier. Just after you listen to this podcast, go and set up an automatic transfer. You'll be glad you did. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I recommended early on, I still recommend it. If you have not started saving for the future, re- you know, retirement, and I know that a lot of people are like, I'm never going to retire. Just plan on retiring or at least saving for it. You can make that decision of whether or not you retire at another time. But betterment.com has been great uh, in the past for me because, you, like you say, you set up an automated thing. You know, if you know that you have, I don't know, let's just say two to 400 bucks a month that you can afford to automatically dispense into there rather than trying to remember it on a particular day, just have it set up automatically. And Betterment's based on uh, Vanguard mutual funds. You can Google that to see what that means. And it's, it's just robo-investing. So if you're not really a savvy investor, and I don't consider myself a savvy investor, I just want to save the money and hope it grows in a safe and, and low risk way. Yeah. This is a way to at least get started and get educated and get into it. I I'm a big fan. Yeah. And if you have a, if your job has a 401k or anything, a lot of times they'll match it, which is something I didn't know. <laughs> I had a 401k when I was working at a grocery store a long time ago and I was, I knew that they were putting money into it, but I didn't realize that if I put it in, they'd match even more. So look into that. It's a lot of stuff that, goes over most people's heads that if you take some time to think about, you can really benefit from. It's definitely something I impress upon my kids. And my 13-year-old has really ran with the concept. I kind of had a hint long ago that he was going to be financially aware, even as a 13-year-old. I mean, he's got, I don't know, he's close to saving 2,000 bucks. And I don't know about you, but when I was 13... Yeah. That was like... A hundred bucks was like a fortune. Yeah. That was unobtainable. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's done well. He will do well in that department. That's the financial education end of, end of it. Did you do you feel like you got your your views on finances from your own experiences or your your parents or both or uh, my mom definitely encouraged me to set up an IRA. I don't know if I would have known what that was without her. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess I mean, part of it's the privilege of having a parent that like knows about this stuff and encourages you to do it. And then, you know, over time, I, you know, I took some money out of it when I had to pay for something, but I kept putting money back in and it's grown over time. And um, I don't know, people that listen to this show have probably heard about this by now, but a lot of people <laughs> don't 
know about it. You know, it is, it's an important thing and I know it's a boring topic and people are, some people are probably tuning out at this point, but because I know it's more fun to talk about gear, you know, but when we look at it from a, a true working class perspective, it's, uh, I feel that you, it's, you got to have a good balance. You got to understand the gear, you know, understand people or learn how to work with people, but you also have to be a good steward of your own money mm -hmm. to, uh, maintain that, that passion that we all have for, for audio. So any other topics that you think we should address that you wanted to talk about? I think work-life balance is always a topic that comes up on the show that is never gets old. <laughs> <laughs> How's that going for you? It's going good. For a long time, I was like in hustle mode, you know, trying to record a lot of bands, trying to get some game audio gig, trying to get my foot in all these different doors, you know, worked at a regular job only as much as I had to. But once I got a good salary job, I was like, wow, this is great. Like I can actually slow down and like look for the gigs that I want that are going to, you know, further my career, pay well, um, work with good people, be a little bit more selective and um, basically not have to like kill yourself hustling as much. I think that's super valuable. It's okay to take a normal job if it makes your life easier and allows you to do what you want, like smarter, basically. Absolutely. And at the same time, even if you are in hustle mode and you don't have a day job, it's okay to take some time off too. Yeah, you need to. And yeah. like we were discussing earlier, if you're a good steward with your own money and you're not just, you know, consuming and buying gear and going into debt and, and spiraling out of control. If you, if you handle it well, you will give yourself uh, a little bit of a runway to do things that you want to do, have those life experiences of going on vacation with your, your significant other and doing mm -hmm. fun things where you don't pick up the phone to book the next gig, where you let some things go, you know, it's okay to yeah. say no. It's okay to say, sorry, I'm going to be out of town. And it'll allow you to like to spend time volunteering if you need to. Like, you know, I, I was making enough money, so I was able to like volunteer some of my time for this gig, which eventually led to bigger and better opportunities. The movie thing I'm talking about. That's a great point. Because when you do these things that we're talking about, audience, you you give yourself that opportunity to be a little more selective with your time, what you say yes to, what you say no to, but also spending time with, you know, those close to you, but also, you know, seeing kind of cool projects that don't make a lot of money where you're like, yeah, that's cool. I can, I can yeah. go without on this one. Yeah. It's a long game that you're playing when you're trying to make this your career. Like it might not make sense to try to book 10 bands in a month at your studio for not much money and long hours. And some of them might be assholes to you. Uh, it might make more sense to chill out a little bit, find that really good project, spend the time on it, and it'll get you farther than those 10 bands ever would. Yeah. Go for quality. Yeah. As much as possible. What's the forecast for the next five years, do you think, for you? I'm going to keep doing this after diversifying a lot and, you know, trying music, um, game audio, film, um, all that kind of thing. I think I've narrowed down into post-production as what I want to do most. So I'm going to keep focusing on that, you know, take other work if it comes, obviously, like I still love working on music and I'll still totally mix a record if someone comes to me, but 
I'm not going to put as much energy as I used to into that. And I'm going to put more into what I'm interested in now. And also making my own music too. Um, having time to do that has been amazing. Like doing something just for yourself is a really good feeling. It also gives you a great perspective too on the process. It kind of reacquaints you with what musicians go through on the recording side. So yeah. I think it makes you uh, empathize with them. Yeah, definitely. Well, where can people find out more about you? DanteFumo.com. It's also the same name on social media, um, Instagram and Twitter. Luckily, I have a name that's not taken on any platform. So <laughs> just my name. Well, fantastic. I'll include all that information about you, social media and uh, website-wise uh, in the show notes. So uh, just want to thank you again. It's uh, I know that you're a fan of the show and I appreciate your listenership over the years, but I really appreciate your perspective here today. And uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, you take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Dante Fumo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I'm going to make the usual plea for you to head on over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. You want to write something, you want to leave some, some stars for me, either way always helps out the show and I would greatly appreciate it. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale in the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical Mr. Chuck Smith, as usual, with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.